So before we jump into chapter 2, and chapter 2 is going to take us a number of weeks, don't know exactly how long, but as you can tell, it's a 10-page outline, so there's a lot to it, um, in large part because it's the most important chapter in the book in the sense of understanding the whole book, right? So this, I guess the way I envision this is this chapter 2 is a multi-point connection. Old Testament and New Testament, there are some connections being made at Pentecost that we have to understand. Ministry of Jesus to the ministry of the apostles, the day of Pentecost is a connection. The ministry to the Jews, then to the ministry of the Gentiles, chapter 2 gives us an explanation to that. There's, there's connection. Old Testament, um, all the captivities that they went into, to now going out to all the nations, willingly. Connection at chapter 2, right? So we have a multi-layered connections here. That full of prophecies and full of many things. And so that's why this is really long. So by far be our longest uh, chapter in the book. But I think it'll also help to unfold some truths in the book. So just for the point of, of trying to remember where we've been. Three major events that happen in chapter 1. What are three major things that happen in chapter 1? There should be one really obvious one. But there's a couple just main thematic things that happen. So Acts chapter 1, what's one really big deal thing that happens in chapter 1? The ascension, right? Jesus is going up. He's going he's staying there. The next time he comes back, it's all over. So we have the ascension. What else? All right, so that's one I had written down of the three. So you got the ascension, but right before that you have 40 days helping them understand what they're going to be preaching now, right? And so that's when we, as we mentioned the first night, when they're preaching all this understanding about the Old Testament and how it connects to the New, they didn't know that just a few days earlier when they were with Him. And all of a sudden they're preaching sermons that are really deep into the, where they get that? It seems like it's probably the teachings that He taught them those 40 days. So that's number two. And the third one should be the most obvious one. What was the third thing that happens in that chapter? All right, they got to replace Judas, and they replace him with uh, Matthias. Now, I will say, Brother Ben had been has been coming to our, our Wednesday nights. I know he has to teach a class at WK on Wednesday night, so he may not be here from this point on. He did give me something that was kind of an interesting. I'm, I think this is from um, John MacArthur. I'm not positive about that, but it just sounds like John MacArthur. And so, the point that we talked about the last time about visualizing him hanging himself and then all of a sudden his guts are spilling out and what exactly does that mean? And we didn't really come to any conclusion. He gave me this and it sounds like a, to me, the most uh, likely explanation to possibly what happened. He says, he quoted the verse, now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity and then this is the commentary here. Now of course he didn't do it himself. He had since already been dead but it was with his money and so in that sense his purchase, it was his purchase. And falling headlong, this is, and this is the commentary, this is what tells us that he had an aborted attempt to hang in himself. He evidently tried to hang himself, but it didn't work. Quote from the scriptures, And he falling headlong burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all that dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that the field is called in the proper tongue, uh, El Kadama, which is Aramaic, and it says the field of blood. Evidently, Judas tried to hang himself on one of the rocky parapets that surround that field 
which is somewhere between the flux of the Valley of Hinnom and the Valley of Kidron. And in that particular field, it was elevated, and there, it's a very rocky area. Evidently, he had tried to suspend himself, maybe with a branch over the edge of something, and hang himself, but somehow the rope had snapped, and he had fallen on the rocks below and burst asunder. So that, to me, is probably the most likely... The ones we were throwing out, like, I think Danny said, what, Satan's coming out of his belly or something is what John Gill said? Yeah, I don't know. This seems a little more likely, right? Um, So I I just thought I'd share that with you because I thought that was a pretty good possibility or it seemed to make more sense than the other uh, alternative explanations. Anybody else have anything from chapter 1 before we move to chapter 2? All right, so starting the first four verses here at the top of your outline. Or if you just have a Bible, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says this. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing, a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost... And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, a few things we're going to cover real quick, but it says exactly 50 days after the Passover, every Jewish male was commanded to return to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, or if you hear a Jewish person speak today, they call it Shavat. This command, there's a bunch of scriptures that I've listed there Exodus 23 16, Numbers 28, Deuteronomy 16, Leviticus 23 are all examples of where that feast. Is begins to be celebrated. The primary purpose of this celebration was to give thanks to God for this wheat harvest, or more broadly, to give God thanks for the physical provisions. The people were required to, quote, bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest, Leviticus 23.10. Thus, the pretext for a very large, multi-ethnic crowd to descend upon Jerusalem is a festival God providentially arranged 1,600 years before the actual day we refer to as Pentecost. So I want to try to... These are the things that I love to see through the Scriptures that I think is important to understand this day. That This is not, and I've heard people that are not very rooted in Scriptures think, like, all these people got together and Peter got full of the Spirit, started preaching, and all these good things started happening. <laughs> no, right? There is so much going on here that God has been providentially working for thousands of years to lead to right now. And so if we, if we go backward and we go to the day of Passover, all of you know what the Passover is, right? They're in Egyptian bondage. A couple things are going to happen. Number one, they're going to reset the Jewish calendar. Remember, on Passover, God tells Moses, this is now day one of your calendar. This, In other words, this event is so significant, it's going to change everything. Now, why is that important? Let's go back again. 400 years earlier, to the day, what happened? Before they got out of of the Passover and got delivered out of Egypt, exactly 400 years earlier, God gave Abraham a promise that they were going to be in bondage, and then they were going to be let out, And it tells us in Exodus, it was 400 years to the day. So you have Abraham getting the promise. Now consider this. At that time, Jewish people didn't even exist. Abraham, remember, is the first Jew. 
So there's no nation. There's no laws. There's nothing. It's just a guy whose wife can't get pregnant. That's it. And God promises, I'm going to give you all these descendants. I'm going to do all these things. But then your descendants are going to be taken into slavery. And when the, the what, what does it say? When the fullness of, wow, well, it's about the Amorites. Somebody help me. When the fullness of the iniquities of the Amorites is full. So evidently what God is saying there, the best I understand is, listen, I'm going to let the, the Canaanite people, where your land is going to be at, I'm going to let them sin, and I'm going to give them a chance to repent. But when my patience is ended, not because like God has an anger issue like us, it's just God says, when the time has elapsed, when it's done, then Jerusalem is, or excuse me, the Jews are going to come in and they're going to drive out those nations. But he's going to wait until 400 years to the day, and then the Exodus occurs. The trigger event that caused them to get out of Egyptian bondage is the Passover that God has instituted. Then, but before Moses' lifetime is over, they go out to the wilderness. He goes up to the mount. He gets the Ten Commandments. God's still revealing things. Part of the law that God reveals to him is this Shabbat. Fifty days after the Passover now, I want you to celebrate this. 1,600 years later, to the day, the true Lamb of God ascends another mountain, and instead of Abraham having his knife stayed on his son, God the Father does not stay his knife on his son to make an atonement for our sins to the very day of Passover. Three days pass. He rises again. Forty days Jesus teaches. One week later, Shabbat is here. So we all must gather in, and we're going to thank God for provisions. I love this. We're going to thank God for God's provisions. And they're coming here, and God, that was for physical provisions. And God is about to abundantly spiritually bless them in a way that they've never even conceived of before. Now, so that's the context for all these people gathered. Now I want to ask this question, and and I talked with, I think, David and Megan about this. And I don't understand, I don't know how to explain this. So, and I I don't think I understand it. When I use the word ethnic, and this may not be right, I think of... People of my nationality, people of my genetic heritage. That's what I think of. I don't think that's necessarily right. Because if you'll turn real quick to page number four, and we'll get to this page here in a minute, but I want to show you this map. On page four, there's Jerusalem in the center. I'm sorry, page four of the second lesson. I'm sorry, of chapter two. All where those arrows are coming from are all the locations and places where those people have descended from that are there that day on the day of Pentecost. There's some lessons back there, I think. Um, And so they're all religiously Jewish 
We know that because that's why they're there. And this is where I don't know if I'm saying this right. They all live under the Roman Empire because the Empire has conquered all of their areas. But they're not the same race of people. Right? Like you have some, if you go north to where it says Asia, loosely, those are Greek people. If you go west, there's Roman people. If you go south, there's African people. If you go east, there's Persian people. But they're all Jews. But they're Jews in that, and we'll talk about this here in a minute, at some point they were all taken as slaves to those various places. And then after 300 years pass, their families, 300 years later, are still there, and they're coming back to Jerusalem to worship. So I don't know how to explain... Like, they're all genetically descended from Jews. But the difference between a Jew from the East and Mede and a Jew from Rome, super different. Just like today, if you meet a Jew from Russia and a Jew from New York City, they're going to be different. But especially at this point, they all trace back to fairly recent, what, 700 years? I don't know. That'd be the Assyrian captivity was 700 years earlier. So the question I'm throwing out is, is it proper to say they're all religious and genetically Jewish, but their ethnicity is different? Cultural Cultural difference. But does that also impart the fact that like, when I'm a Jew in Greece... For 300 years, I'm likely marrying with other Greeks that are not religiously and culturally, and so it dilutes this genetic strand. You see what I'm saying? Like, now I'm a half-breed or an eighth or a sixteenth or a thirty-second, but I'm still somewhat... You mean as far as the Jewish area? Correct. Because they're marrying, and then that complicates things. outside the Jewish religion. What's that? They're not supposed to marry outside. They're not supposed to, correct. And so you would think, but we find like in the book of Ezra, chapter 10, a bunch of them did. A whole bunch of them did. And so we know that's what God like disciplined them for, was that they married outside in huge quantities. So anybody have a thought on that? Because I've kind of struggled to know how to, as I'm teaching on this, express like there's a huge difference in one way. Not a pretty good job. But similarities in the sense that they're all Jews. And they're all coming back to worship. And as crude as it sounds, like I think of, I've been to Ghana and met Missionary Baptist. And I've been to Macon County and I've met Missionary Baptist. And they're both Missionary Baptist. And there's certain tenets, but like in Africa, they dance to take up the offering. In Macon County, they don't do that if you didn't know, right? (laughs) Um, So... Again, I wanted to put that forward because I, I want to, in your mind, when you're thinking about this group, they're going to look really different. Like there's going to be some racially black people. There's going to be people dressed like Romans from Rome. There's going to be people that are Greek speaking people. Like it's super diverse in one way, but they're all coming to the same place to perform the same ceremony. And so make sure when you're envisioning this, that's what you're envisioning. You're not just thinking like, we're all racially white people that come from America. That's what they were. It wasn't like that at all. It was very extreme opposite. 
very different. And it, cities with large Jewish populations today, though, it's still like that. They're all very different. So, like in Atlanta, is that what you're referring? Okay. okay. And I wouldn't have known that. And yeah. How how devout they are, and how they dress, and how they live, whether they keep kosher or not, all those things within their home. But then, once you know sort of the community that they're in, you know whether they're European or. Italian or mm-hmm. South African, or you can tell where they mm-hmm. come from. Somebody else have a thought. I think that uh, Judaism is. I mean, that, there are different sects within Judaism, but I don't know how it, how it was at this time. But Judaism was kind of its own culture. Mm-hmm. So I think that there was a common, at least a religious culture, but also. Uh, you know, the way that they live, their, their civic lives and everything, they shared kind of a culture. So I don't think, I think it would probably be more accurate to call them Jews of different ethnicities. Okay. Uh, because they did have different ethnic backgrounds. And of course, where you live, you're going to be, at least at some point, you're going to be learning the local language. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the Jews had the Hebrew school. Mm-hmm. Where uh, they usually taught their kids to read, write, and speak Hebrew, but they they assimilated wherever mm-hmm. wherever they were. But this is part of the reason that all these people were in Jerusalem at the time was because of that that culture, mm-hmm. that unified culture. Uh, what was it? The Jew was expected to go to Jerusalem for Passover three times. Three times. Yep. Feast of Weeks and Feast of Tabernacles and Passover, yeah. So that's an example of your, your common culture mm-hmm. And it dawned on me, too, what, one thing you just said is, if I'm having, I mean, if I'm having a gathering and all Jews are supposed to come from all around the world to one place, what caliber of religious Jew is likely to travel from Rome three times a year down to Jerusalem and back? probably wealthy and super devout. And so that's another layer that I see in this that I'm I'm inferring from the text. It doesn't say, but it just makes common sense. You're only coming back to Jerusalem if you're devout um, practitioner of Judaism, which when I think of devout, I think people who gravitate towards the pillar of, Traditions of whatever religion they're ascribing to. I'm not saying that's necessarily accurate. That's just the way I think of it. Is like I'm going to go back. I want to give my sheaf, my first harvest sheaf, to the the priest to offer in the temple as a sacrifice to God, which is what these people are doing. And so, um, I want to bring that up because I hope you're kind of in your mind building a visual of this day. Because when this day begins to unfold. The way I've always looked at it is it's just like a big gathering of people like us. And it's not at all. And that's pivotal to understanding the significance of that day and what happens from that point on. And we'll get to that here in just a minute. Look at bullet point two. And I'm going to throw a lot at you with this second chapter. There's just no way to avoid it because there's just a lot here. So on a different setting. So now we're going to step away from kind of the visuals, the culture, the ethnicity, and certain layers of those things. And I want to kind of draw in something that's going to happen here that 
is more theological and, and has an effect on us and, and how we view things. So, immediately when we think of the book of Acts, it becomes the Holy Spirit. Like that's where our minds, are, like, that's where we go. And there can be, and we're going to ask a question on the second page, about our emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Because I think we can take it too far. And I think if we look at this central day of Pentecost, the inaugural day of the ministration of the Holy Spirit, it's important to pick up on something that happens on this day. So look at uh, at bullet point number two. Although much is learned about the dispensation of the Holy Spirit throughout this chapter, it is important to accurately interpret the fulfillment of this feast. We can do so by more closely reading the message Peter preached to the Jews on this day. His message was completely about Jesus. It was about His resurrection. It was about how Jesus is the Messiah sent by God, how His miraculous ministry and foretold resurrection, which they personally witnessed, was God's validation of His Lordship, divinity, and messianic title. As the wheat harvest was evidence of God's natural provision, so Jesus' resurrection is the evidence of God's spiritual provision. As we focus heavily on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church age, let us always recognize that the anointing power of the Holy Spirit is not the goal. Rather, His manifestation and power is meant to exalt the Savior, Jesus of Nazareth. Salvation is given to none other than those who put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. His name and message must resonate and reverberate through the hearts of men and requires the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to do so. So, briefly, that lot of words saying this. I have been in services at times before where I really got uncomfortable at how much people worshipped the Holy Spirit. Everything was about the Spirit. And I want, to be, I want to overstate this. The Holy Spirit was given here at Pentecost in order, and, and throughout the New Testament, we see the work of the Holy Spirit is to more clearly empower the gospel. And what is the gospel? The message of Jesus. The message that you're in sin, and God sent a Savior and so if I go out and preach that, and I am, it's just me. It's not the Lord helping me. It's just me. I'm just going out and saying, you need Jesus, and you need Jesus, and everybody needs Jesus. That may go into people's minds, but it's not going to have a powerful effect on their heart. It's not going to be able to work in them salvation. Without what? Without the power of the Holy Spirit. That He as a person takes that message and opens their heart and causes it to affect their heart. And, and so sometimes when I've been in service, it's like people are talking about the... And I don't even call him an instrument because it makes it seem like he's a thing and he's not a thing, he's a person. right? But that the messenger is what we need to focus on. Let's just focus on the messenger and hope the messenger comes and the messenger and the messenger. I'm saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. If, we, if the messenger does come, he's going to come with the message of Jesus. And so all through the Gospels and all through the New Testament, he's saying, lift up Jesus. Exalt Christ. Let Him be the central focus of everything the church does. 
and pray that the Holy Spirit helps you to lift up Jesus. Not, man, it really feels good when the Holy Spirit comes, so let's really get the Holy Spirit here because it feels so good. And then there's been times where, like, if your church goes six, nine months, and there's never in Sunday school preaching or teaching, the centrality of the gospel is never presented. It makes me wonder, like, have we missed our aim? If Jesus is not constantly the center, because that's the saving message. And here recently I was talking to Brother Mike. Uh, We're going to go to Guatemala here in a a few months for a few days to do some teaching to some preachers down there. And he was telling me what he wanted to teach. So he lays all this stuff out of what he wants to teach. And it was about salvation and what we experience in salvation. So I was listening to him, and I was like, well, Brother Mike, what is that rooted in? Like, if I just get up and I'm talking about, you got you got to repent, and you got to believe, and you got to hear the gospel, and I'm talking about, and then you got to feel conviction, and then you got to do this, this, and this, and I'm not talking about who I'm putting faith in, which is Jesus. Like, that's the central. Because if you're just wanting to have faith just to have faith, the effectiveness of your faith fully is dependent upon the object of your faith. Or in other words, if if you say to me, if I have to walk a tightrope, and you say, you got to balance. If you don't balance perfectly, you're going to fall off. But the tightrope is not strong enough to hold me. It doesn't matter how good of balance that I have. The object of my faith cannot sustain me. So who is the object of our faith? Jesus. And so if all we're ever talking about is, well, you've got to have really good balance. You've got to repent and believe. You've got to feel the Holy Spirit's drawing. All that's true and necessary. But it's a package deal, and the foundation of it is this. If I don't have if I'm believing in a God who doesn't exist or I cannot is not my savior, what good does it do if I have perfect balance? What good does it do if I can 100% repent and turn away? It does no good. And I worry sometimes that when we're teaching people about the gospel, when we're trying to distinguish what we believe, we just jump to the second thing. You gotta have good balance. And I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, why do they even need to trust Jesus? And who is Jesus? And what did he do? And how is his ministry relevant today and to them? And do they know who they're believing in at all? Or do they even think he's God? Like, the Bible's primary, between the two, its primary focus is validating the person of Jesus from beginning to end. And it teaches us then, once that is established, what we build on. So to try to bring this full circle, I said, where are you going? Okay, here's where I'm going. If all we talk about is the ministry of the Holy Spirit and don't talk about the message He is ministering, can our message be effective? 
So if we don't talk about, so then we look at Peter and we say, what was his message about? So he had the Holy Spirit like nobody preaching other than Jesus has ever experienced. Peter experienced on Pentecost. Like a power that gripped thousands of people who had just crucified Jesus 50 days earlier. So he is cloaked with the power of the Holy Spirit like nobody ever. What was his message about? It wasn't about the Holy Spirit. It was about Jesus. And when they heard about Jesus, their hearts were broken. Conviction was wrought as a natural byproduct of the Spirit taking the word of Christ. And so I ask myself this question about our churches, not doctrine being right or wrong, our emphasis. What's our emphasis? And to me, I think the emphasis of God's people, from what I've seen and experienced, we could get a little bit closer to the message of the gospel and distance just a little bit from the messenger. And you may disagree, and that's okay. Somebody have a thought about that or a question about what I just said? Anybody have a thought? I always thought that the Holy Spirit was more of a catalyst. Mm-hmm. Basically, he takes the message and energizes it where mm-hmm. it penetrates the person's heart and mind and mm-hmm. really stirs up a lot of things. Holy Spirit is not the item, but it's like one of those necessary attitudes. Absolutely. Somebody else have a thought about that? So let me throw this question out there. So why do you think if my explanation, if you agree with it, you may not, but if you do, why do you think that our churches, our church and our churches of like faith and order emphasize the ministry of the Holy Spirit so hard? Like, why do we emphasize it so much? I think it separates us from other That's what I was thinking. Is that I think sometimes we emphasize it really hard because other religions don't at all, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They don't know who the Holy Spirit is. He's just like this character in the book of Acts. Whereas we say, no, he's essential to the church's life and ministry today. And if you want to know the difference between us and the Baptist church down the road, it's probably they've got it all planned and coordinated. And we believe the Holy Spirit should infuse our services. And so I think we've emphasized it to differentiate. And that's a good thing on one hand, but we don't want to go too far with that and neglect the saving message of Christ. And that balance can only be given to us by who? The Holy Spirit. (laughs) Right? But Christ exalting is what always our message should be in our songs. Think of our song service. How much do we sing about the Holy Spirit? We don't. I mean, rarely, right? There's a few songs that we sing about. It's all about Christ. That's all we sing about is Christ. And so to me, I'm thinking, okay, if, if you took our songbook and you say, maybe five of our songs are about the work of the Holy Spirit. And you put that and you say, maybe 150 of our songs that we sing are about Jesus. That seems to me like a good balance for our messaging too. Right? Like, yeah, we want you to know about the work of the Holy Spirit. We want to instill the, the necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to neglect it. 
and we want to differentiate. But we don't want our message to people to just be, there's a Holy Spirit. There's a Holy Spirit. And that's all that matters. I don't think so. Somebody else have a thought. Yeah. Do you think that the Holy Spirit acts under the direction of Jesus? Or is, is He an independent, co-equal part of the... Mm-hmm. I mean, is He acting on His own knowing that God and Jesus and He are, are in unity? Mm-hmm. Or is He acting on the directions of Jesus? So I would say... There's two verses that come to mind. One is, is John chapter 16, where he says, when, I, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will not speak of himself. Now, what that's not saying is not saying like he won't talk about himself. If you go back to the translation, it means he will not come of his own authority. He will not speak. His words will not be, in origin, of himself. But he'll speak what is revealed to him, what's told to him. So to me, to answer, that, that answers that question to me, and it's only furthered by later on in Matthew 28, when Jesus tells him, it's like he's saying, now all power is given to me in heaven and earth. So that's not like a, well, he's just sitting up there and he's just got all the power. It's saying like, I think that power is meant, to, he's using it. I have the power now. And I am the one exercising lordship over this realm. That's how I understand it. So when when Jesus was in his ministry, he talked about that he couldn't do anything of himself, Mm -hmm. only what the Father Father did. Mm -hmm. So he was operating under the authority of Mm -hmm. the Father at his direction. And you're saying that you think the Holy Spirit's doing the same. The way I've understood it is when Jesus comes and he's descended here, he is completely surrender to him and he ascends and that doesn't mean that there are not some things that Jesus is still leaving in the purview of the father because there are but that now Jesus Christ rules and reigns and it is of his authority that the Holy Spirit and so what I love about that and then let's go full circle here then when we get to heaven the father who has been the preeminent one up to this point is saying Now I'm going to give all glory to the Son. And so then we see in this beautiful picture, Jesus and the Holy Spirit submit to the Father. Jesus resurrects. And the Father says, the authority is yours. And the Spirit says, I'll only speak what you tell me. And then when we get to heaven, the Father says, He's the one you worship. And what a picture of unity within the triune God. I don't get, I'm going to surrender to Him. And so you see this beautiful picture. And then, that's why John 16 is so beautiful. He says, you need to be one as we are one. So then when we're getting glorified, we, we don't want it. I don't want the glory. Let me esteem others higher than I esteem myself. Right? And that mindset of, of unity by being deferential to glory and praise and actual authority which is the, the terrible thing about a culture who tries to uproot yielding and submitting to each other. As if like a woman submitting to her husband is this oppressive thing. Hold on. All three members of the Godhead willingly surrender to one another all authority. 
Like, what you're doing when you submit, and this, this whole picture is you are showing the world the same <coughs> virtue that God shows the world in Himself. I'm going to submit for the honor and power of another. And yet they're all of equal value. Nobody says, well, the Father is more important than the Spirit or more powerful. They're all the omnipotent God. And yet they yield. And so man and woman, we have different roles. Just like throughout history, they've had different roles. Right? And so somebody else have a comment or a question or a thought. Mm-hmm. And um, thinking of Matthew, where Jesus said that you know it would be forgiven if we blaspheme His name, but it would not be forgiven if we blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. That's to say that the Spirit is our is our connection to God. It's our mm-hmm. connection to Jesus mm-hmm. because that's the He is in the spiritual realm, and the only way that we can connect with Him. Yeah, and that, that's a scripture that's always stumped me, and I don't think I have it. I don't, I don't feel comfortable knowing exactly what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, but I definitely think you hit on like it's in the right area of like it's the power of the Holy Spirit to, as the word that Alec used, to energize the whole work of salvation. So if I blaspheme him, what hope is there for me? But I still don't feel comfortable with it. It still feels like there's more there. I just don't know what it is, like in that meaning of that verse. The way I look at it is what you're getting at here. That is, if we don't submit to the Spirit, we can't be convicted. We can't Mm -hmm. can't, have the faith to believe. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thought that I had um, was as far as the, uh, I forgot it now. Uh, oh, when they asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, Jesus didn't say anything about praying to Him. We, we always pray to We pray to the mm-hmm. Father in the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we never pray to the Holy Spirit. Correct. Mm-hmm. But the Spirit enables us. Mm-hmm. And you see even in that, and I guess, and again, whether this is accurate, I've not found a reason that it's not. When I'm praying, like you said, I'm praying the will of the Father be done. So it's like, think of it like, okay, the Father is the architect. And he draws out the blueprint. And he hands it to the foreman, in one sense, which is Jesus, who has the power to construct in what order what he wants and you know he has the power and authority over the work being done and who's doing the work their hands who's the one actually hammering the nail the spirit and so when i'm praying i'm coming to the father to the architect who the one whose will is going to be done in whatever happens that i'm praying to but i'm coming with a preferred position the name of Jesus. I have access to you because I know the foreman. He's my elder brother. 
He's given me access to you. But I'm so weak and feeble and fragile, I don't know the language to speak to you. I don't even know how to describe anything about what I'm wanting to be done. So the Spirit is my translator. And it says that in the Scriptures. Like, He is the one that is translating my prayers to the Father in the name of the Son. I have a right to be there because of Jesus. And I have the ability to even convey what is in my heart because of the Spirit. But it's all at the beckoning of the Father. And so when I'm praying, I'm praying to the Father. But I know I'm only there because of Jesus. That's why I can get to His throne. And if I'm not saved and have the blood of Christ applied and coming in the presence... And, and like, let me say this. This is not just get the right verbiage. That's not why this is needful to know. Like In your heart, you have to have an awareness that your prayer getting to God is because of what His Son has done. Like You know I'm only here because of Him. And for me, when I recognize I have no hope in the presence of God without Jesus. Like the veil is, that's what the whole picture is about. The veil was torn forever. And I can come in with access without the blood of bulls and goats because one time Jesus entered into the real holy place with his own blood to grant me access forever. And so I stand in this hall with the omnipotent God's audience because I have the badge, right? It's Jesus. And I say, and so when I'm praying, very often when I consider the fact that like I'm speaking to the God and the only reason I can be here is because of Jesus. It makes me, before I even begin to pray, praise Jesus to Him. Like, thank you so much that I can be here because you sent your Son. Because you've redeemed me. Like, thank you that I can be in your presence because of Christ. And so... Yes, as you described, like to me, I see this layered relationship or, or, or um, way to get to God. But it is the Father. But I'll say this. If you mess all that up, don't worry about it. Like, don't worry about it. Like, that's the beautiful thing about God. Is what is He looking for? A humble, broken heart. It's like, it's so beautiful, you know? That like, I can come and perhaps there are people for their whole life, they pray to Jesus their whole life. And you might be sitting here and be like, I've been saved 40 years praying to Jesus. Okay, don't worry about it. Because God knows that the intent of your heart, that you've committed a sin of ignorance. That's why Christ redeemed you. Like he can take that and say, you know what? Their heart's right. Their aim is off. So through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'll just redirect that from Jesus and get it to the Father. And they've been redirecting your prayers for 50 years. Say, yep, this one went to the Jesus inbox again, but I'm giving it back to you, Father. Right? And like, that's, that's great. Like, that's so wonderful to me. So don't let this like, okay, now who was it Brother Brad said I had to pray to? And what did I have to pray? Don't do that. That's not the intent. This is just teaching the way that God has ordained it to be, but more important than you getting the verbiage right 
is the good thing is they're all the same person anyway, or the same God anyway, right? Like, it's not like, well, Zeus is over here, and then i got to go to this guy. No, it's not like that. He's God. And so, again, just a lot of appreciation that I feel whenever Jesus is at the center of those prayers. Somebody else have a comment or a thought before we move on? So far, we're to verse 2. <laughs> There's only 48 in the chapter, so we got, we got a little way to go. All right, let's go to the third bullet point on chapter 3. Now, this what this is going to start doing is now we're going to visualize what it begins to describe in verse 3. So, we've tried to layer as a pretext the people that are going to come on the scene here in a minute. But this is the actual place where the Spirit's going to descend. And so I want you to start kind of visualizing it. They're up in an upper room. And for a week now, exactly, they've been praying and waiting on the dissension of the Holy Spirit, which they have no idea what that looks like or means. And they're praying. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. The women that are with her. The now 12 apostles are there, counting Matthias minus Judas. And then the number had swelled to around 120. So all of his other followers from various places have come. 120 are there. And all of a sudden, in verse 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Heaven, that means the sky. As of a rushing mighty wind. Those are important words that modify mighty rushing wind. As of. Similar to. Right? So... And these are two important things to think about. Those two words are going to be spoken a couple times. So it sounds like wind is coming down, but there's not necessarily any wind actually coming. There's a mighty rushing wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. So the way I can think of it is you start hearing from a distance something up in the sky as a sound. And of course, they don't have all these sealed off doors and windows. They're open air, likely. They're in an upper room. And suddenly the sound is among them now. And then, verse 3, And there appeared unto them cloven tongues, again look at the words, like as of fire. That was helpful to me when I began to, I'd never noticed it before, like as of fire. I was thinking all this time, fire. Like actual hot fire. But it seems like what it's saying, and I'm happy to be corrected about it, there's the appearance of some visual, but it's not fire, but the only way he knows how to describe it is it kind of looks like it. And there's a loud noise there, like a mighty rushing wind. And the word cloven means, I think I've got it here, like divided, divided tongues. So if you look in in the third bullet point, Fourth line, along with the noise, there were cloven tongues or divided tongues which appeared like fire and rested upon each individual in the room. So, okay, so I've got the sound. I can see the color in my brain. I'm just being honest here. I still have a hard time imagining divided tongues. Like what that looks like. Right? Yeah, it's just like a, I mean like a snake or like a, a tongue. <laughs> I don't know. Like it just seems strange to me a little bit. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So, like a okay, yeah, I can see that. 
like that, or like that, or was it like this? <laughs> and so, evidently it descends, and then it begins to divide in the room, and it begins to be over people. And then, um, and it sat on each of them, so it stayed there. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Now again, this is going to be an important distinction for the rest of this book. This is not talking about this indwelling of the Holy Spirit at salvation. He's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This unique occurrence that happened, as far as I can tell, four times in history. And we'll get to all four of those times. The first time is right here at the day of Pentecost. Okay? 8, 10, and 19 or three other times is going to happen that we'll talk about here perhaps next week if we get to it. So they're all filled with this gift. Okay, so how did you know if the guy has the gift? The rest of the verse tells us. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So initially, the way you know that somebody, and if you think of the power of the Holy Spirit, so think of yourself, when you get up and you feel the Lord compelling you to testify and exhort a lost person or praise Christ in service or give your testimony and you feel and you get up and you don't know what you're going to say and then all of a sudden you can even say with humility the Lord just helped me I didn't know what I was going to say and the Lord helped me and I just don't fully understand how that all those things I remembered that and I remembered that and I said that you're not being immersed with the Holy Spirit but you're being, I guess, to your ankles, the Holy Spirit's covered you, right? Now, the Holy Spirit was so powerful in this moment that their whole person is consumed by His power in so much that He infused within them the ability to speak other languages. Because the Holy Spirit knows all languages. So if the Holy Spirit wants to give somebody the power to know a language like that, through His power, not through their own, He's the one doing it. So then all of a sudden, they begin to speak in other languages. So, a couple things to consider. Is it chapter... I don't remember what chapter it is. We'll say chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Babel occurs. The people come together to do something to one place to build a temple for their own selves to show off their own power and god says i'm going to divide you all if that's what you're going to do when you're unified divide you all so that's what he does and all these different families speak different languages and that's likely where the spreading of different places go now we fast forward some 20 500 years-ish. We fast forward. And now, God through a temple is wanting to reverse what He's done at Babel. Now, the fact that everybody speaks a different language is a problem, a very natural problem. It's a problem we're not used to here in America, but I've been to places where it's really hard. When you go to Africa, and when I was in Kenya, I would preach... And this guy standing next to me had to interpret into two different languages. So he would speak one language to one people, and then on the other side, he'd speak to the other people on the other side. 
And it was a hassle. I mean, it was the biggest obstacle to the gospel getting in. And there were untold number of times where I would say words like conviction. And as he's translating, he would stop and he'd look at a guy in the front row and he'd say, he'd, start, he'd speak his language and he would say the English word conviction, um, um, pain. Um, he, was, he couldn't find the right words in the other languages. And it was an obstacle to us. And there were times where it was a really big obstacle where I began to lose my train of thought. Right? Because he's not just doing that in one language because then he'd get through that language and he'd look at the guy on the other side and say, um, conviction, pain. <laughs> and I'm like, just say conviction. <laughs> they don't need to know what it means. That's not true. But it was, it was frustrating, right? It was an obstacle. And that's with somebody who could translate. I've had other experiences when I was in it, when we were in Franklin, Kathleen and I would go to this Mexican place and there was this guy that we just had a, a lot of fondness for. And he was an older man and I, I always felt so guilty that he was serving me chips. It just didn't feel right. Like I'm this 22-year-old and he's this 70-year-old man coming from another country, working hard. I just felt always so weird about him like serving me. It just felt like it should be flipped. And we would try to make conversation every time, you know, and, and we just couldn't. And we just couldn't talk. And, and if I said, like, uh, do you have a family? And he'd be like, uh, and I'd be like, uh, familia, I don't know, like, el family, I don't know, right? So I would try to talk to him. And there were a few times where it was like, Kathleen and I both would so desperate, like, I want to invite him to church. But what good is it? Why, why does he come? Beyond high, he can't understand anything. Uh, before I started pastoring here, right before I started pastoring here, I was going to Lyons in Louisville and preaching. And there was a whole uh, Spanish family that would come in. They sit down. And I went, and after the second time I got there, I'd like go shake their hands and try to talk to them. And we just couldn't talk. And Tony Clark, a member there, speaks fluent Spanish. And I just sat up there, and I just thought, I think it would be sinful if I didn't have him translate for me. Like, not just, like, inconvenient, sinful. Like, what good are those people doing sit and listen to me babble in a different language? And there's somebody who can translate. And it's a minor imposition on the English speakers. But if the point of the message to begin with is to spread the gospel to the world, and we have a Spanish family that unexpectedly comes in, and it just so happens that one of us knows Spanish, shouldn't we be not so focused on aesthetics and comfort that we would just say, well, yeah, just have them translate for you today. And have a translator, and then I preach, and I have a translator, and instead of going one hour, I go two hours. Right? Um, I bring that up to say, on the day of Pentecost, God was reversing what He did at Babel. But it wasn't, He divided them for a fleshly sin, and He's now overcoming that same obstacle to build a spiritual temple unto the Lord. Um, which leads to the last two bullet points, and we'll be done tonight. Why do you think, and I've already kind of given the answer, why was the foremost gift, this is page two, top of bullet point, why was the foremost gift of the Holy Spirit given on the day of Pentecost involving the supernatural ability to speak other languages? In short, the gospel needed to go out. That's the reason. So now take that piece of knowledge 
and contrast that, and I don't mean this in a, to, to be funny, to people who advocate speaking in tongues today in their religion. Like, you can clearly see here the gift of tongues was for a very important purpose. And at the center of the purpose was the communication of the gospel. The message of Jesus Christ. When these people speak in tongues today, first of all, they're lifting up the wrong part of the Godhead. Right? Because the whole concept, even if what they were saying were true, it's them magnifying the power of the Holy Spirit. They're saying, look, I have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Whereas this language, gift, was so that the lifting up of Jesus could be effectively done. That they could actually lift him up. And so notice this gift was given. The reason why the gift of the Holy Spirit was primarily focused at this point on languages was because it was what enabled the gospel to go out to other nations. It wasn't just to say, I'm praying and God hears me in this unknown tongue, which is what some, so there's a whole list of Pentecostals, and I'm not going to try to put them all in one basket because that would be wrong to do so. There are some of them, though, that will say, you know, it's a spiritual language. They, they get it from 1 Corinthians 13. It's an angelic language. First of all, they say whatever they're saying, God's inspiring them to say, and it's an angel's language. And they have a scripture they go to that I don't think they get correct, that they're saying, I'm praying in an angel's language to God. And to me, I feel like the fundamental problem is they don't understand the gift of tongues to begin with. That's why they're doing it. Here, it seems super clear what the gift of tongues was. And so the primary thing is the gospel's got to go out. That's the obstacle. Here's how we're getting past it, the gift of tongues. Um, Was it because everyone spoke different languages and he created a universal language that everyone understood? To to kind of come to a common term. So so yes, and I would say that universal language, well... That everyone understood well, and it wasn't, so it was, there's two ways you can look at what happens here, because the next portion, it's going to list the 15 languages that are present. So let's just skip there real quick to answer your question. Look down in verse 9. So it's down at the bottom of page 2. From there, Parthenians, all the way down to verse 11, Cretes and Arabians, everything in between are the languages that are present at Pentecost. Turn your page real quick to the next page, page 3. The very middle list are the 14 languages, excuse me, that are present. And it tells you their place of origin. Okay? And so then on, you don't have to, don't turn there yet, but on the next page where the map is, it shows you where those languages are at. Right? So, and I've tried to figure this out, and I've heard two different explanations to it, and I don't know what I think about it yet. One of two things is possibly happening, because it keeps on talking throughout the text about we hear all of these men speaking and they're all Galileans. So I can't tell if what's happening here is that a bunch of them are speaking, like the tongues have been divided, it's fallen on different people, and I have been given the gift to speak whatever that first language is. I've been given the, whatever Iranian language from, from media is. I have that gift. Danny's given the gift of Elam, and then... Uh, Megan's given the gifts of Mesopotamia, and, and, and so all these gifts have been spread out, right? And that 
On the day of Pentecost, Peter's message is the primary one, but they're all going out and witnessing and preaching. There's thousands of people all throughout Jerusalem, and so they're going out and they're speaking the message of Jesus. But, let me ask you this, if you go to China and there's a whole sea of people here and you find out there's a group of Americans, what are you going to do? You're going to go to them, right? That's what's natural, that's what we always do. Likely, that's what these people did. So you have your Grecian Jews over here and your Roman Jews over here and your media Jews over here. So it makes sense. We all have these divided gifts. I go over here to the Greeks and I'm preaching to the Greeks and you're going over here preaching to these people and these people and these people. That's definitely one thing that happened on this day. But here's what I can't tell what happened to get to your question. When Peter is up preaching, he's speaking in one language. But they're hearing it in their language. So God is transforming his words, you know, I don't say magically, just as God does, he's, he's translating it to that individual person. So I don't think they're hearing one language, they're hearing their language, but he's speaking one language. Because yeah, right. what, what I was trying to rationalize in my head, when you were talking about speaking in tongues, mm-hmm. like if, if somebody broke out and speaking in tongues in here, we all speak English, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no purpose for there mm-hmm. to be a speaking in tongue in this congregation. Absolutely. But if you have all these 14 different languages, gotcha, yep. power, there has to be a common mm-hmm. uh, translation. Absolutely. So I didn't know if that's what was going on here Absolutely, I think definitely, and you're exactly right. If, if somebody got up here, and that's what the irony, I think, of some of these Pentecostals that get up and do that is like, you're, this is, what you're doing is regressing in spirituality, not progressing. You're speaking and we can't understand you. The point of it is to speak a language so that we can understand you. Right? And that's certainly what he does in this case um, with ease. Last thing here, or I guess we're done. We're going to stop there. Because we're going to get into this second part, the bottom of page two, where we're going to then, Luke, the author, begins to you know, parse out the context here that we've covered some. And we'll talk about some big picture significance there. And then finally, on page five, we'll get to the actual message that Peter preaches. And what is he actually saying? Which, again, I think in a lot of these cases, I definitely think it's in this case because it tells us we're just getting a small snippet of what's being said. Like, I think the Sermon on the Mount was probably a whole lot longer. But we just get two and a half chapters. Do you think the 12 of them were the ones that spoke in the different languages or the 150? I think the majority of them did. Yeah, a whole bunch of non-apostles are going to get that gift of speaking in tongues. When we get to 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, it's revealed to us in a couple other places also that churches as a whole were given that gift in the apostolic age. Like all these churches were given this gift. And so, to your question, I don't see a reason it would be limited unless the text said it was limited. Because rather what it says is there's this divided tongue and it just starts falling on all this whole congregation. So if it's only the 12, I think it would be imperative for the text to say it was just those 12. Because it, it would make no sense then later on for everybody to get it. right? Like Cornelius in chapter 10, his whole house got it. Men and women both. They spoke in tongues. 
And they were given the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Double check me on that, but I'm pretty sure because then when Paul in chapter 11 goes and he says, hey, I, I, I baptized them, and they got the same gift that Pentecost got. So go double check me on that, but there's 8, 10, and 19 are the places of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it isn't just given to apostles. It's given to churches and groups of people. So, Somebody else have a, a question or a comment?